0: Throw off Fitzpatrick, throwing high into the air. Got it. Parker touchdown! What a win for this Miami Dolphin team! Wow. Whoa. What is up Dolphins, fans and welcome to the drive time podcast part of the Miami Dolphins official podcast network covering your Miami Dolphins. I am your host Travis Wingfield, and as always I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football and on today's show I'm joined by a very special guest to discuss a variety of topics from his time as a Dolphin and also his opinions on the current team all of that and much much more with Channing Crowder. All of that and much, much more on this Monday, March the 16th edition of the Drive Time Podcast.
1: Going after him. Got him, guy, oh, He got the football, but <laughs> he off. Channing Crowder with an interception at the 38 yard line. And this football game is all but over. The Miami Dolphins are going to win this game.
0: And I am you- so excited to welcome in the Dolphins' third round draft pick in 2005. He spent his entire six year career in Miami, racking up 470 tackles. He's the co host of The Hawkman and Crowder Show on 560 WQAM. Channing Crowder. Channing, what's going on, man?
1: What's up big dog? How you been, man? Good
0: to see you. It's good to see you too. Got the Skype going on the other end of the other end of the country over there and I think that's a good place to start here on the podcast because it's a crazy time right now Channing and sports have largely been put on hold. You mentioned you got the day off today from the radio station. That never happens. Can you give us a player's perspective on events that get like canceled like this or something that has transpired? in the same vein as the coronavirus, the corona pandemic, and how you have to respond to that as a player?
1: Yeah, I haven't. I wasn't a part of this, obviously. I don't think, you know, in my lifetime, I'm 36 years old, i never been a part of a pandemic. But um, athletes are so scheduled, bro. Like, they, they tell you every day of your entire life what you need to do, where you need to be, what time you have to be, or what time you have to be there. And for something like this to get thrown in, NFL right now, not so much. I know they might push back free agency because they can't visit. They might push stuff back. But for, like, the NBA guys, they had 17 to 20 games left in all their seasons, and now they're just stopping. So, like, this is for an athlete and for, you know, continuity with a team, you know, getting to know your teammates and understanding that you're supposed to be playing your best heading into the playoffs, the NBA right now is about to just start and jump in the playoffs. So, yes, this is something none of us, you covering sports your whole life, me playing and now covering sports, man, this is nothing that I've ever seen, I've never been a part of, but I would say from an athlete's perspective, being scheduled, having everything scheduled for you. Kind of like the reason why a lot of guys struggle to retire is when they don't have that schedule. So to have this just stop. And I've talked to some guys where NBA guys are saying, I was like, are they practicing? Are they going back to camp? Like, what are they doing? And nobody knows because no one's dealt with this. Uh, Pat Riley and Eric Spolster down with the Miami Heat, they're two of the greatest of all time. But how do you deal with a pandemic? I think all sports leagues, you see MLS, you see NCAA canceled their tournament, just no one really knows how to deal with this because to be honest, no one has ever dealt with this. So hopefully after the 30 day hiatus that the NBA's taken, taking, I think Adam Silver doing a great job. He's kind of setting the precedent athletically for what leagues and, 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 and associations are supposed to do. So after this 30 day hiatus, we'll have a lot more information and, Be honest, guys a lot smarter than me and you need to figure out what to do with these leagues because, yeah, if they called to ask me, I'd act like my phone was about to die. I wouldn't know what to do.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right, and I keep seeing all these hot takes on Twitter and whatnot. It's like, why don't we just let the people that are in charge make these decisions? I'm I'm right there with you all the way. And you mentioned the regimented idea of an athlete, and that was kind of my next question was how big of a challenge is it to get off of that everyday routine? Because even for me in this position, it's – I mean – Eight to five, I have every 15 minutes or so blocked out. I have to imagine when it comes to an athlete and getting your body right and taking, you know, naps or getting the proper nutrition into your body, it's just got to be such a change to all of a sudden stop operations completely and get to this point to where, like you said, we don't know what we're going to do. And I I mentioned what's something that you've been through that was a bit of a curveball. And I came up with a game from, I think it was 2005, might've been your rookie year, when the Saints were going through Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, that's when that's when Katrina was. So it was two thousand five and you guys had to play at Baton Rouge. Was that was that any different for you as a player or just the same because it was a road game?
1: It was a lot easier for us because it was a road game. You hit it on the head where instead of going to the, you know, what is a superdome, we just went up to Baton Rouge. So we got off the plane just like we do when we play the Giants, the Jets, the Charter. It was the same for us, you know, the Patriots, but we just went to another stadium. But I remember just being and I've actually played LSU. In college, so I remember walking in and the little itty-bitty college locker room and, you know, just the the different atmosphere and use of these elite stadiums. Well, the old San Diego was a college stadium, but most (laughs) of them are real nice. So even that, I'm sure for the Saints, it was a lot harder. I'm sure, you know, with with all the, you know, natural disasters that go on, it is tough. But I'll give you an example like Zach Thomas, no exaggeration, he had every second of his day planned. He He had his... his four four hundred grams of protein, his sixteen hundred grams of carbs. He had his vitamins in like a little um, lunchbox. He took four you four fourteen in the morning eight sixteen. He had everything regimented. A massage guy. He had a stretching guy come to his house at night. I used to go over his house after practice, and he would watch film until he fell asleep in his in his theater. Like he was so regimented on what he did. And I know that going to in we to New Orleans, I know that affected him because I would talk to him and he, bro, this ain't right, bro, bro, this ain't how it's supposed to be. This ain't how it's supposed to be. And it was a longer drive from New Orleans down to Baton Rouge, and also like I know those elite athletes, those guys that really treat their body like a high-performance race car. You change that, you change them, you change their approach. It it might be a lot of psychological. It might be a lot more psychological yeah. than actually you know affecting the guys' play. But once you're used to something like that, when I got in the league, Zach's been in the league for, I was 05, he was a 10-year vet. He was a multi, he was a six-time pro baller by the time I got there. He knew, what, he knew what it'd take to be great. So now you're changing his greatness. A lot of mental stuff, a lot of guys second-guessing themselves, second-guessing the decisions people make. We had I played uh, the Chiefs down here, I want to say 06, or 07 sometime, and there was a storm coming. They moved the game to Friday night, and that messed up everybody because now you couldn't get your Friday massage. You had to move your Friday massage to Wednesday. You had, you had to move everything back, and that Ferrari, that, that race car, couldn't get ready like it was used to getting ready. So for an athlete, it's going to be tough. I think the I think the, the, the style of play and the quality of play in the NBA, if they do, I heard, I was reading today, they said NCAA might do like a 16-team a mini-tournament yeah. over a weekend. The quality of play is going to go down. The the style of play has to be adjusted. It's not going to look like playoff and tournament basketball because of the fact that that regimen changed That, that, that greatness push that everybody has at all levels has changed now. So I'm hoping that they figure it out and give us high quality sports. But right now, man, I'm waiting to watch a UFC fight in Brazil this weekend, bro. I, I can't do that every weekend. Like XFL. I thought I had the XFL, man. They're not even giving me that, man. But it's uh, it, it's it's going to be tough on the athletes. And to be honest, now from the outside, hell, it's tough on the spectators. It's tough on the analysts. We were talking we were talking about uh you know the the best salty snack today and uh, the, uh, the uh, Mount Rushmore of Vinny's and the history of sports. We you know we're we reaching now to do stuff, but it it you take sports out of this world. You take a lot of, be honest, a lot of passion, a lot of love and a lot of money and a lot of jobs. I think the NBA salary cap goes down next year for the, you know, for the first time, I want to say in seven, eight years goes down because of the fact that the coronavirus is messing up the TV money and all and the stuff that happened with China and the owner of the Rockets earlier this year. I think that combined, that's going to take the money down. So a financial aspect of this as well.
0: I think you're going to be left with just darts and bowling by the time this is all over with in terms of what's on your television. Maybe NASCAR, but I don't know how far you venture into that type of stuff. But you mentioned yeah. that that Dolphins Chiefs game back from the mid 2000s, and I remember that as a fan because you talk about the impact it has on players, on analysts, on fans. You know, as I was back in that time, and it wasn't on T V and so I didn't get a chance to watch that game. I had to follow along along with the old like game, the NFL Game Center, like the little dots and the Dolphins helmet. <laughs> like here's a, a Tackle for loss, Channing Cry. I'm like, yeah, you know, celebrating my computer. <laughs> the, the
1: little the little ball would jump. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, like you see a go, you see it move a couple inches, like, no, no, I get a stop. It's it's you know, a tough way to watch a game. But th- those were the old times. We're in modern times and things have certainly changed. But I want to transition now, channing, back into what it looks like for a normal year. Because one of the things that always fascinates me as a lifelong football fan and now uh, journalist, is the expectation of rookies coming into the NFL? I asked Christian Wilkins about this on the podcast last week. And the offseason for a rookie coming into the league, you go right from your season ends to combine preparation to the combine to pro days, then the draft, then you got rookie minicamps. For your experience from the last day at Florida up until the day the Dolphins drafted you, how arduous or just how, I guess, would you describe that experience in that three or four month period?
1: Most stressful time in my life being in the leagues not as stressful being in college, even getting recruited because they love you like when, when you're coming from high school to college they, they love you they tell you you're the greatest of all time. you're gonna be the next Ray Lewis you're gonna be you know they love you because they want you to come to their school. in the NFL you're, you're' they're hiring you so it's different and then these guys come in. I remember sitting down with Mike Tyson, sitting down with Belichick, sitting down with it was um, uh, at Green Bay J- uh, Jim Bates. He, he was very interested in He was at Green Bay at the time. It was the, right after he left as the interim head coach with the Dolphins. I just remember sitting down with all these prestigious guys, all Ron Rivera's and those guys, and they're not loving on you. They're trying to weed out the trash. And that's what that, that draft process – and that's the thing I tell everybody. The, the combine drills – they're stressful to go. I didn't do anything at the Combine because I was – Mel Kuyper lied to me. I was going first-round <laughs> guaranteed, so I can't stay on Mel Kuyper to this day. But I was I was going to be one of the top three linebackers taken, so I, I, I don't need to do nothing. I'll work out of my pro day and all. But even that, the stress of looking at – they give you a note card when you get to Indianapolis, and it says 10.15 a.m. Colts, 10.30 a.m. Jaguars, 11.15 Falcons, and you just have this list of all these teams – and you're walking in with owners, head coaches, deep deep coordinators, linebacker coaches, and now you have to put on your best. Like it's like almost like speed dating. Yeah. <laughs> I have to show you the best of me in 15 minutes, real fast. And then after you go through that entire process of the of the combine and all, now you get a couple a couple weeks off, and now every coach in the NFL is coming to your college. So now I got to perform. Now I got to go out here. Well, now at the time Florida they let people, you know, was a lot of spectators at pro day. So now your buddies are out there. Now all your teammates are out there. The same coaches that are putting pressure on you. Bill Belichick actually worked me out personally. When it was linebacker drill time, he went and grabbed the ball and started doing it, pointing each way and getting to see where my hips move and all. So now that's stress. So now, okay, I'm done with the physical side. I'm done with the interviews. Where am I going to get drafted? Am I going Am I going? You know, top 20 like Mel Kiper told me? Is my multiple, 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 multiple arrests going to affect me? My knee surgery is going to affect me? So just the stress of that. So now actually, then you go through the draft. My draft day, I thought I was going first round, didn't go to third round. It was still on the first day back in 05. No, mm-hmm. so first through third round in 05. So draft started at 12. I went fishing with my buddies, had a big cooler full of beer when they got a bunch of wings. You know, hey, I'm going first round. We'll be out here on the lake fishing. You know, the, the Green Bay Packers will call me and, you know, and and give me this big contract, couple, eight, ten million dollars guaranteed. I'm good to go at 20th pick. And then they don't call me. And then the Patriots actually promised me if I'm available at 32, they were going to take me. They might have done some more research on my off-the-field activities, we'll call them, <laughs> and they end up passing on me. I didn't get drafted until 8.15 that night. So the first round was around about, ended about 2, 2.30. For the next five and a half, six hours, I didn't know where I was going. How far am I going to slip? What's going to happen? That's just a lot of stress. I was 20 years old. I came out as a sophomore. That's a lot of stress on, you know, with a lot of people. My mom's there, my sisters, my aunts, my uncle. everybody's in Gainesville because I'm about to go and change the family's outcome. I'm about to go and get this generational wealth of all this money, and the money doesn't come. I still get drafted in the first day, but that stress there. That's not even the hardest part, bro. Now you get to a team, and I walk into a linebacker room. These are the starters when I walk in that room. So I'm, they drafted me third round to come in and, you know, play the run. I was a run-stopping guy. I was 250. I was a big old boy. The starting linebackers were Junior Seau, Jason Taylor, Zach Thomas and me. I was the weakest link. I went from all American in high school to all American in college, two-time all SEC to the weakest link. Like, and it's not even it's not it's not it's not art, it's not art, you can't argue it. I was the weakest link. Sam Madison was still there. Pat Surtain just got traded when I got there. Keith Traylor, Vonnie Holiday, Kevin Carter. I'm looking around like these are the guys I play with on video games, and now I have to go out here and perform for them. The hell with Nick Saban. I want to form Nick Saban. When I walked and saw how JT and Zach will look at you if you mess up, I had to form for them. I didn't want to let Zach down. I say it all the time: the, the three people I give credit for for, for me making an NFL, not getting there, but making it. God number one, my mom number two, Zach Thomas, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He taught me how to be a pro. He taught me how to train. He taught me how to work. He taught me how to watch film. And now you're going out there with the best of the best in the world that you respect so much. And you have to perform on that level with guys that have four or five mortgages, have three, four baby mamas, have child support to pay. They're not coming out like college, like, hey, bro, let's go out and have a fun time. They're going out here to grind and get paid and get these contracts. And it just keeps building up and building up. I would say that starts, that pressure and that that, that demand of yourself that you put in your body your whole life, that doesn't subside until – probably the regular season starts and you're locked into your position. You're locked into your job. You're locked into the defense. You know what to do. But man, from my last game, which was the peach bowl against Miami, we got whooped until my first game in the league, which was the Denver Broncos at home. Yeah. The year they went 12 yeah. and four, we ended up beating them. We were one of the four teams that beat them because 100 and, it was 120 degrees on the field. They called it the 12th man. Temp Bailey was still their ball. Like they had a team and they ended yeah. up, they went up going to the playoffs, going 12 and four, but from, Miami in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta to that first game in Miami against the Broncos, that stress was the most stressful, mentally demanding, and physically demanding time in my life. It, that's a tough stretch for all these young guys that are going through it right
0: now. It kind of reminds me of the old saying, like they say that the hard part is supposed to be practice. Then you get to go out on game days and have the fun, the, all the poking and prodding. That's the, the stuff that an athlete like yourself, definitely not going to enjoy. Uh, you made a couple of comments in there. I want to get back to you real quick. I do want to talk more about Zach Thomas, because I knew he had a great influence on your career and yeah. you personally, but you mentioned going to the draft and possibly going to go into green Bay. Now I want to circle back to a story you told on the fish tank about your recruiting trip to Penn state. <laughs> when you got out and you said, you know, you went into a dorm room and it was fine. And then you look outside and there's six inches of snow on the ground. So maybe going to Miami over green Bay, not the worst thing in the world, right?
1: Oh yeah, man. I look at it. I'm a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to church every Sunday, I ain't gonna lie to you. but I am a spiritual guy. If I got drafted to green Bay or new England or the teams that were interested in me, I wouldn't have came down here. I wouldn't have you know, met my wife. I wouldn't have got around these great coaches. I wouldn't have got an opportunity to be in the media. Like I, I am, I might've, but I don't know for sure. I wouldn't have met Zach Thomas. I don't know if there was a guy in Green Bay or New England, or who else was it, um, Atlanta, that would have took me under their wing, that would know how to, not just play ball, but how to teach. And Zach knew how to teach ball and play ball. So everything happened for a reason. Did my four ACL reconstructions, did my multiple arrests, did all that stuff come back to bite me financially early on? It did. But was it a blessing in disguise? As I look back as a 36-year-old now, I was I was pissed on draft night. Now I'm not, not going to sure. lie. I was pissed missing out, going from million guaranteed to third round. Man, I might make a million dollars if I make 100 (laughs) tackles this year. You know, it was a big difference financially, but it was a blessing in disguise. Ended up getting to my second contract. Ended up having just the most amazing coach, George Edwards, who is now the D.C. of the Vikings. Just all the people I met, all the people I were around, I think that was a blessing in disguise. But I'm with you, man. That cold, I can't deal with cold now. My kids love to ski. I don't leave the lodge, the chalette, whatever they call it. I sit there and I drink beer and whiskey with all the old rich fat guys <laughs> the entire ski week. My kids go on. I'm not going out in the snow. We got off the plane from Pittsburgh, and now the paternal name is, is is ruined. Jay Paterno, Joe Paterno, all that's ruined. But Jay Paterno flew to Pittsburgh to pick me and my mom up and brought us back on the little plane. It was it was when we when we were flying in. the air, I'm looking down and seeing the snow. I said, Coach, I can't play here. <laughs> He said, what are you talking about? I said, look at that. <laughs> and then Courtney Brown ended up being my host. The guy that got drafted to Browns. He ended up being my host. We're in their apartment. And he's like, hey, we're going out. I like going, leaving this place? For what? It's feet. <laughs> Bro, It wasn't six inches. It was about a foot of snow. I said, <laughs> I said how do you party in this? They go to the party. Everybody's wrapped up in jackets. I'm like, man, I'm used to Atlanta and Miami. And I was in Gainesville. Everybody went. Girls wear bathing suits. You got to pop club. that
0: shirt off, right?
1: Yeah, I'm used to that. I was a shirt off guy. I had a six pack, but I was a shirt off guy. I would get naked in the club. But yeah, man, I, I saw that snow, and that's the new Penn State was the only northern team that that I had showed any interest in because my dad was a multiple time All American there. My dad played for the Dolphins as well. But they brought me to two summer camps, which made me love it because state college is a great, beautiful, beautiful place. They brought me on my visit January 11th. And that was that was the reason why I did not become a Nitty Lion. I didn't follow my dad's footsteps and lineage and all that stuff because I am not going to live in two feet of snow. I'm never going to do it. And if somebody could offer me a lot of damn money to move north of the Bible Belt somewhere because I don't like that snow.
0: <laughs> well, that's a good part to kind of segue into... The part after your rookie year and the first four years of your contract, you mentioned kind of that financial hit you took, but then eventually you did get the extension with the Miami Dolphins, and that happened. I want to say, was it a week or two before free agency? Was it really close to when the market opened up?
1: When yes, they. Um, it's funny because when they when the Dolphins called me and Joel Siegel, he he was my agent, big time agent. Now he's he's still in the He still you know represents a bunch of guys. And um, when they asked me, "What contract do you want after my fourth year? What contract do you want?" Brian Erlacher just signed his big deal. So we got Brian Urlacher's contract. We we literally just put white out over his name and put my name on top and sent it to him. Because if you've asked me, I do it now with car dealerships. They say, hey, Mr. Crowder, how much you want to spend? I say five bucks. They're like, you want to buy a car for $5? I say, you're asking me what I want? I want to buy a car for $5. Well, and we go going to it. So I approach free agency the same way. How much are you asking me do I want? I want Brian Erlacher's money. I want the $40 million guarantee, whatever he had at the time. And we went back and forth with my injury history. They didn't want to sign me to a long term deal, five, six years, because I had, you know, a bunch of knee surgeries, uh, micro fractures. I'm I'm at 17 knee surgeries now, you know, throughout wow. my life, starting in eighth grade to now. So I you know, I I knew I was damaged goods. So then we got to three years. So we sent them a three year deal. I wanna say the first, second week of the season, early in the season. They went back and forth all the way through the season. <laughs> All the way through the offseason, all the way up to like this time, right before free agency started, I think I would have been, I wouldn't have been, I would have been out of contract. I wouldn't have had, I'd had a little, a little NFL symbol yeah. next to my face on TV at like eight midnight that night or the next morning, whatever. And they called Joel Siegel at about four thirty and told them the first deal, the first three year deal, you 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 know, three for fifteen, whatever we gave him, We'll sign the first deal. So they went back and forth to agree on the first deal we ever sent them for three years. But that was the game, and that's how how negotiations happen. So I locked in between 4 and 12 hours before I would have been a total free agent.
0: I guess it's nice to know that you never really had that lag, that gap, like you mentioned, to get the NFL logo next to your name on SportsCenter or whatever it might be. We're here with Channing Crowder on the Drive Time Podcast with Travis Wingfield on the official Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. And you mentioned it, Channing, we do have the legal tampering period coming up on Monday at noon, today actually on this podcast, and... I'm curious to get your take because we just put out a film on the Miami Dolphins socials and the Miami Dolphins website everywhere about Brian Flores' background and growing up in Brownsville, a tough neighborhood up in Brooklyn, New York, and just a really fantastic job by our video team. And I wanted to get your feeling about – you mentioned the impact that Zach can have on a guy because we we talk so much about – the environment a guy goes into is everything in terms of what his career means. Sure, there's talented players that are more talented than others, but the surrounding cast and the support that player has to make the best of his development and his career can have such a big impact. But I'm curious to get your take on what it's like to have a well-respected coach like Brian Flores. Like you see that video, you see his, his previous players talking about him so glowingly. What does having a guy like that in the building do for not just recruiting outside players, but also the program as a whole and the guys that are already there?
1: Communication is one of the biggest things in NFL that um, I love um, a quick Mike Nolan story. Mike Nolan, you know, well-respected guy, San Francisco head coach, you know, he went to Atlanta. He actually wanted to bring me to Atlanta before I retired when the Dolphins released me. But Mike Nolan came up to me and I used to cuss all of, I used to just cuss, cuss, cuss at practice. If somebody missed an assignment, MF this, and I would just go crazy. Because I was middle linebacker. I thought that's what you need to do. You had to, to be a little, little, little different to go crazy. in there and hit them big dudes in their damn face. <laughs> so Mike Nolan came up to me when he finally got to Miami. And Nolan Carroll, he ju- I think he just retired. Nolan Carroll just mm-hmm. got out the league. And Nolan Carroll was a rookie. We tried to in and out the tight end and, and slot receiver. And Nolan messed it up. And I cussed. I dog cussed him. Mike Nolan pulled me to the side and said, Channing, I'm a teacher. This field is my is my classroom. I can't teach while you're yelling and cussing. I need to teach these guys what to do. I don't need to scare them into what the, I need to do. And it just, it, it put a light bulb up on me. I stopped cussing. And I stopped, I didn't stop cussing. I stopped screaming and yeah, I stopped going crazy in teach periods. You know, 11 on 11 playing ball, I was still cussing at everybody. But on like a teach period, it made sense to me where this is a teach period. They call it a teach period because these coaches slash teachers are trying to explain what we need to do. And that's the main thing with a coach of communication. Now going back to Flores, where he come, where he came from, and what's it called, humble and hungry. Yep. Where he comes from, um, you know, lived in a project, didn't have a lot of money. Football got him out of there. Football got him to that private school. Football got him to Boston College. Football got him what he has today. Just like I would say, I don't know the exact numbers, but. Bro, I would say 70 to 90% of the guys are were Brian Flores at some time in their life. He can relate to him. He can. I remember like telling Coach Saban, I get I was fight at practice. Hey, what's wrong with you? I'd be like, bro, Coach, you dude tried me. What what does that mean? What, what does tried me mean? <laughs> Flores knows what a dude tried. Like, you know what I'm saying? He knows the link, the, the language of what I'm talking about. He knows what I'm saying. He knows how to approach a guy. He he he's he, he thought cube steak was good to like I did when I was a kid. I, I thought canned corn and green beans were great vegetables until I got a little money and, and decided they weren't. I'm not eating no more damn canned <laughs> corn. The relatability of a coach is so big, and the understanding of where these guys come from, the understanding of, okay, he has money now. People think when you get money, oh, now you're a different person. You're actually more of the person you were before you had money. Now you just have resources to become more of what you want to be or what you have been. His relatability and guys knowing, and it's kind of genius to put it out because on social media now, number of free agents are going to see that film and going to say, this isn't, this is to be honest, this isn't like Belichick. This isn't, you know, and they're great coaches. I'm going to yell, I love Andy Reid. This isn't Andy Reid. This is a guy that grew up like I grew up. This is a guy that knows the grind I went through. And past all that, this guy can communicate to me. This guy can sit down with me and not talk down to me, but talk to me like a man because he understands if you're talking down to me, a lot of guys go into the tank that grew up in those situations. You're yelling at me. You're a, um. you're, you're a, 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 you know, a figure. You're a higher figure. You have some power. Now I'm looking at the ground. I'm kind of scared. You remind me of a police officer. You remind me of a principal. You remind me of that. Flores is a he, me and him were in college together. He played Frank Gore on his highlight reel. I played Frank Gore my last yeah. game. Like me and Flores are the same age. So he can sit and talk to guys and communicate with guys. And like I said, to the story I was telling about Mike Nolan, to teach guys at a communication level and at a relatability level that I think he can be very successful. And that's all all on top of his lineage from New England, seeing how greatness was done. I don't like Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. I respect Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And it's a big difference. You can like somebody, like somebody. I I like going to the strip club. I don't respect the strip club. I like going there it's a big difference respect is what people want and that's that's why I think Flores learned that New England learned how to learn how to game plan learn how to do all the football side stuff but his past and what he became and where he went and all that pot on top of each other I am excited about Brian Flores I knew they I knew maybe day one or two cam Cameron wasn't that guy I knew Tony Ferrano was in over his head in about a couple even during the good year the 08 mm-hmm. year Tony Sperano just wasn't that leader of men. You know, God rest his soul. Great human. I still talk to Jeanette, his wife. We still text on holiday. Great person, but there's great people, and then there's great coaches. And you could know, when I met Flores, when I talked to Flores, when I saw his approach, when I saw him getting guys like Nick Needham and getting um, Hartage and these guys out on the field and playing at a high level, you just saw a coach that knows how to teach, knows how to get the best out of his guys, and I think will have, I think, we actually have a real coach now for so the first time since, if you want to say Wanstead, give Wani a little love, maybe since Wanstead, <laughs> the first real NFL head coach.
0: Well, you mentioned Nick Needham. He played at UTEP in college, and so that jump in competition for the first year, to get out there and produce like that, that's just, it's so rare for a guy to make that jump in terms of the of the competition and have production like that. Montre Hardest changes position, so I'm with you 100% on that chaining, and let's go ahead and stay in that lane because you talk about Brian Flores, not just the football savant, the leader and the and the great character and the great man that he is, clearly, but you mentioned the lineage he has from New England. He was the play caller in a Super Bowl where they hold the NFL's highest scoring offense to three points, a field goal. They don't even get in the end zone that entire game. And so from your experience as a classic stack linebacker, a scheme standpoint, what are some of the things that you like about Flores' defense and what you saw on tape this year in your number one?
1: Winning winning before the snap and the scheme of what of what. Them knowing to take away the best op- the best option the other team has, and that's all Belichick talks about, and that's all he did. They can go to a three four, they can go to a four three. They were in a it's kind of like a five one. They would walk um walk a linebacker down on the center and go with three two three techniques and two ends. And now you have man to man across the board. Mm-hmm. He would he didn't have much talent, but he was doing everything with those guys to try to make them play. He 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 put Jerome Baker in the middle of everything, and tried to keep him unblocked to let Jerome run because Jerome's fast he slide him to the tight end, pull guys down in the box. He knows the X and O's so well that when he starts getting pieces on the board, not playing with pawns, when he starts getting some damn, some, some look, I don't even know the name, what it looked, the, the, the castles and the damn spades and
0: some quick and, and
1: and those good-ass pieces, the ones in the back, when he starts getting some of those good back pieces of chess, he's going to do it, but his multiples of defense, and I talked to Patrick Graham last year at a couple of events and things, and I'd ask him, hey, man, what defense do y'all run? Because – Belichick is a legit 3-4 guy. He's the Vince for big 380-pound, 350-60-pound nose. He's a 3-4 guy because of the even set. And the nose and the mic have to move back and forth to get that six-man lean with 11 guys on the field. I know that's where he comes from. I know that's what he loves. But to watch him not have the personnel, to watch him have Devon Godchild and, 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 um, and Christian Wilkins, who are all single-gap guys, shoot up the field, you know, that old-school Colts, play the run-on-the-way-to-the-pass type guys, to see him adjust with what he had. But to watch to watch how Flores schemed it up, saw what happened in those first four or five games when they were getting their mouth bashed in, adjusted out, start you know running his shells and running different things, making guys trust each other, teaching guys the system, his multiples of defense. Everybody thinks a, a play is won after the ball snapped. Bro, I would, more than half the plays are won before the ball snapped. We know where you're going. We know what you're doing. In New England this year, if you double teamed Edelman, the play was over. That's why they couldn't score. And people figured out double team Edelman, plays over. Those defenses won the snap before the ball was even in Brady's hands. And Brady's a GOAT, greatest of all time. I really feel that way. He's winning plays before the ball snapped. And as I look at when I sit back and really look at football, that's what I look at. I don't need commentators. I'll listen to Romo. Romo's pretty good. I don't need a Book McFarlane little crooked fingers telling me what's going on. <laughs> I know football, man. But when I watch a game and before the snap, I'll say, "Oh, they got him." And my buddies know it. They laugh when I say it. We'll be watching football, and it'll just gonna be randomly in the second quarter, and I'll see it, and I'll be like, "Oh, they got him. They got him." I just see the safety roll, just certain things. They got him. I said that a number of times about what what Flores and Graham were doing last year. And now that Graham's gone, I think Flores is gonna take more. If he's gonna really step up more. Now he's comfortable in the head coach role like Belichick did. If it's very similar now. How I, I'm sure Belichick helped out Flores with his play calling when Flores was calling those shutouts in the Super Bowl mm-hmm. against the Rams. The Belichick would help him and also go and manage his team. Flores is a first-time head coach. I don't know if he was comfortable doing that. Being, the, you know, People give Adam Gates a hard time because all he talks about is offense, all he thinks about is offense. Mm-hmm. When his defense on the field, he plays damn uh, Sudoku <laughs> or Candy Crush on his iPad and now with Brian Flores in his second year, to now see the, see the landscape, be on the field, understand what his players are doing, understand the sideline demeanor and the, and the moving around and when he needs to be placed and when he has to make decisions and bringing his guys to help. Last year, that was his first time being head coach. It seemed like he posted a lot of New England guys, and now he's in it. Now he can really bring in guys he agrees with. He brought in Chan Gailey to replace Chad O'Shea. He's making a lot of moves, which I love. He came in as a first-time head coach, and nobody knew of Brian Flores to be honest. And he gained my respect very fast. But with Flores now being that head coach, being understanding what he was doing last year, and now I like I was talking about, you know, how I led into this was him now being comfortable, being a bigger part of the defense, and for me to be impressed with their pre-snap, pre-snap look, pre-snap adjustments, understanding what the other team's trying to do, and take away the other team's best best guy. You play Tennessee Titans, stop Derrick Henry, make Tannehill beat you. It's easier said than done, and now seeing that Flores can do it, seeing what he did, uh, you know, 5-11, they should have never won those five games. There was no chance they should have won five games. But seeing that, I have a lot of respect for Flores, his communication t- tactics, his style, talking with him, seeing how he, he, he'll joke a little bit with you, but he's not, a, he's not a player's coach. Now, he's not going to sit and, you know, BS all in the locker room and sit around and talk about girls. He's going to keep his, his pedestal as a head coach, but he can also be relatable, and everybody on that team, and I've talked to a number of guys, I've, from Rashad Jones, who they just released, to Christian Wilkins. We did a bunch of events together uh, during the Super Bowl down here. I've talked to enough guys about Flores and about his approach. He fully... They fully gained respect from him. He gained everyone's respect in that first year. Now this second year, now they take off. What they get? What, what'd they, how many picks they have now? 16-something with those compensatories? Like getting weapons to now implement into that defense and implement into what he's trying to do, I think moving forward, I think we might have found that dude.
0: I think yeah absolutely I'm on the same page and I think that one of the big things you look at there is you talk about establishing the culture of the you know the locker room and that might be a cliche thing to say but like you mentioned it has an impact and also the fact that these guys are everyone they developed this year just gives them further depth on top of those draft picks, on top of the free agent capital they have to spend this offseason. So you really do establish this kind of next man up mentality because you can get to 45, 53 players deep on the roster to where everybody can come off the bench and contribute. I think that's a big part of what they accomplished this year. You also talked about taking away the best option or just having the right pre-snap look. The biggest difference to me, Channing, was you look at third down defense, like third and long. I recall Dolphins teams in the past You'd keep the base defense on the field, or maybe your nickel defense, and you've got four receivers out there, and you've got linebackers running on receivers, and it's a third and 13 conversion, whereas last year, teams got into third and long, and they struggled against this Dolphins defense, so knowing the situation, knowing the down and distance, that was a lot of fun to see, and one thing that we I want to talk about a lot on this particular podcast now and in the future, Channing, is just the X's and O's of the game, and you kind of mentioned it with Zach Thomas there. And I want to get back. And kind of dovetail back into that conversation. And I know a lot of folks love your off the field stories and they're great. They're, they're absolutely hilarious, but I really enjoy picking your football brain, man. And on top of the linebackers, the topic of linebackers, can you kind of walk our audience through some of your basic keys as a linebacker, you know, whether it's reading the pulling guard or recognizing formational or personnel tendencies, just how much goes into the cerebral aspect of playing the linebacker position?
1: Well, first, the simple part of it is alignment assignment. Know where you're supposed to be and know what you have on run plays and pass plays. You're either going to have a gap and everybody, A gap, B gap, whatever you name it. uh, Center guard, gap, guard, tackle gap, tackle tight end. You're going to have one of those gaps. Or in a 3-4, you have to go and take the guard off. People say two-gapping. A lot of people people say two-gapping. People don't know what two-gapping means. It means that everybody has a man to hit in their face. If the guy runs to your left, you make the tackle on your left side. The guy runs to the right, you have to make that tackle. But there's a guy next to you also having a half a body in that gap. People, it kills me when people talk about two-gapping and don't know what the hell's going on. When I got in the league, I went to Nick Saban. He's a 3-4. That's all he likes to do. He'll get the nickel and dime on those third downs, but he's a he, he's 3-4 guy. Yeah, so Saban being that 3-4 guy and, you know, Zach Thomas thriving in that, and so you, you line up a linebacker, you got to know what your gap is or what's your run responsibility. If it's two gapping or if it's a single gap and what your responsibility is as a, as a pass guy, if you have a tight end underneath with a safety high, if you have the tight end man, if you have the running back anywhere on the field, if you and the other linebacker are inning out the running back and tight end if they cross low, there, there, there's the assignment side of it. And that's what you can teach. That's what I could teach my high school players. I can line them up get through camp and let them know, if we run this, you have the A-gap and you have the running back man. And that's what a lot of guys in college go off of. I got with Charlie Strong. He was he was my D coordinator of college. And that's who really taught me football. In high school, I just ran around. I was 6'2", six, six, two, 210 pounds, running a 4'6". I would just fly around and hit, hit people. I was bigger and faster than everybody. Then when I got to the SEC, I had to learn football. And that's what he taught me was just the alignment and assignment of what I had to do. And I was a better athlete still than most guys. When I got to the lead, and this is where it gets interesting, you have to read the guards' pre-snap alignment, how far he is away from the tackle. If he's tight to the center, that might mean he's trying to reach a guy on the other side of the ball or pull around, so now you, you can kind of lean inside if he's leaning inside. If, the, if him and the tackle are down, you know they're running a zone because why would they condense the line? Why would they get one-foot splits between them when you're trying to run? You're not trying to create space right there on the right side of the line if y'all are foot-to-foot. So what you're trying to do now is you're trying to let us spread out. You get tight and run away from us. It's so many little nuances to the pre-snap stuff we were just talking about with Flores. Before the ball even snap before you have to get off of blocks, before you have to know your leverage on blockers, before you have to know your leverage on receivers, before you have to know all these small nuances to your assignment, you, ha- you can look at so much stuff pre-snap, and that's where Zach Thomas or Ray Lewis or Brian Urlacher or Mike Singletary, that's where they win. And that's when I try to explain to people football, they're like, hey, I play Madden. I'm like, oh, Madden, you can't see if the guard is leaning or if his shoulders are turned. Or to th- the simplest one, bro, a fullback has to look at who he's going to block. Like, if you line up and yeah. a fullback's in the game, he can't look at the sideline, snap the ball, and run and block a defensive end or a linebacker. At some moment, that line, that fullback is going to peek at who he needs to block because he has to see where you're at. So after you see your guards, after you get your lineman, after you, you know, you're in your 30 technique, you're off the guard, you're stacking your D-tackle, whatever it is, look at the fullback. A lot of those bad fullbacks, Lorenzo Neal wouldn't do it. Mike Allstott wouldn't do it. They were, they were Hall of Famers. But a a, a, a slappy McDougal fullback, he's going to stare, stare exactly at where he's going. That's the simplest one. Just those small keys you can get where Zach would steal tackles from me all the time. <laughs> because he would have those keys. So I'm in the B-gap. I'm in my gap. They're running at me. Zach would see the keys to know they're running at me. So when the ball snapped, Zach would move before I moved. So I'm running up. I break down to make the tackle. Next thing I know, I hear, bam! And then Zach's laying there shaking. The running back laying there shaking. He done not the dude out. That's, that's where you become great. You can be good by just reading post-snap. You get great by getting so much information pre-snap. It's, it's almost like a computer. It's almost, I don't know if people watch Westworld or something. It's almost just, it's like a computer where you can get so much information pre-snap that once the ball snapped, it's like it's like playing a video game. Oh, you're running you're running a zone left. You can only run here. I know the DN's here. I know the safety's coming down strong. You're going to cut back to my gap. I'm going to shoot my gap. Zach used to yell at me, shoot my gap. He would see something and the tight end stepped off the ball. Cece, shoot. CC shoot. That's what they call me, CC. He would say, CC shoot. And he was telling me, he figured it out. Just run through your gap. I would say most of my tactics philosophy would come Zach telling me CC shoot because he saw so much, he processed so much. Receivers where their feet are lined up. I saw um, a video of Ocho Cinco and Deion Sanders recently. It was on Twitter where Ocho Cinco lined up a receiver and Dion got in front of him. And Ocho Cinco turned his foot inside. And Dion looked and said, I know you're running inside route. Look at your foot. And then Ocho Cinco kind of laughed and walked away. He, he saw too much pre-snap. Cinco before the ball was snapped, he knew what route he was running, how his hand, where he's lined up, how deep he is off the line. That small stuff, pre-snap is big. And then post-snap, there's a triangle, especially for inside off-the-ball backers, both guards and the, and the near back, so if it's a fullback or, line, or, or running back. If you can see, if you can open your vision up enough during or when the ball snap to see front-side guard, and he's right in front of you. The front-side guard's right there. You, if you can't see him hell. You're Stevie Wonder. You should be playing football anyway. If you can see that guard right in front of you, but open up to see the backside guard, if he pulls, and also see the tailback or fullback, whoever's the close back to the line, every run play goes through them. The two guards and the fullback take you to every single run play on the field. If that guard steps down and this one pulls, go hit the guard. They'll run the ball behind them. If both of them step left and the fullback comes right, it's either, it's either a zone cut, Or it's some kind of lead backside if they would have a tight end, a wider lead. The guards and the near back show you everything in the run game. And pass pass plays, too. If you can see those guards, the rules are they can't step out if it's a pass play. They can't come at you. So the ball snapped, they back up, go to your responsibility. And then you have to play ball. Mm -hmm. That's the funny thing. This is all before you have to tackle Marshawn Lynch. You have to cover Wes Welker. You have to cover uh, Reggie Bush, who was held. to Jerry, Reggie was a monster in the open field. This this is what we talked about here the last two or three minutes. This is before mm. you play football. This is before you have to go against guys running four twos, four threes. Stay inside out. Know where your leverage is. Know if I spill this guard to a linebacker or I box this guard out to another. You know, to a safety. All that other stuff you need to know before you physically have to do it. And that's where you see these guys that are. Just built like gods in college. Fast, strong, big, big arms, you know, just just monsters running four threes, and they go to the NFL, and they flame out. They they couldn't do it here. This this wasn't where they up in up in their they could not process this much information as fast as the Zach's and them do it. If Zach is an A plus processor, I was a B minus, maybe C plus on if I drunk too much Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> but I could still get in there and make a play or two. You know what I'm saying? Just the processing of what's going on. If me, when people see me and Zach stand next to each other, you would never say Zach was the all-pro. And honestly, should be a Hall of Famer. Yep. I'm 6'3, I was 250. I was, you know, my neck started under my ears. Zach's about 5'10. Like I say, 215. Didn't wasn't really muscular. Had so many shoulder surgeries. His shoulder was was cut up, looked like Swiss cheese. (laughs) But (laughs) once. Once you walked out and put a jersey on and put a helmet on, you would automatically say, oh, 54? That's the dude because of his mental side of the game. And all those guys, even the bigger, that's why Ray is what he was. Ray Lewis is what he was. And all those guys, Patrick Willis was the same way. He processed fast. Like, I really respect linebacker play. And that's that's a, a, a quick little gist of just what you need to know before you have to go out there and physically do it with the greatest athletes in the world the mental side of it where a lot
0: of guys fall short. And that, yeah, that's the part that makes the game so fascinating to me as a fan and a person that just loves to try to digest as much as I can, especially, you know, I've been, I've been watching film for only, you know, a short amount of time compared to someone like yourself. But when I go through a play, I, I'll watch it, I'll bring it back, I'll slow it down, I'll watch it again. And it takes me two or three times to, you know, really get the gist of what's happening. So when you consider these guys out there making plays at the snap of a finger like that, it's so remarkable. And I, I want to ask you, as a two, two parts here, as a pro, is there anything that you can do besides just getting in the playbook to really make that instinct kind of improve and get better? Because it seems inherently inherent and you wouldn't be able to work on it. And number two, when you go to the combine and you meet all these players or you meet potential free agents that you've never, you've never been around how they work before. How do you, in a half hour meeting or an hour long meeting, how do you figure out which of these guys has that and who, you know, might be short in that area?
1: I'll go the first, the first, the second answer first. Sure. I don't think in that 15, 30 hour meeting, you know what a guy can do and how much a guy can retain. You can watch what he did in, in college, but college playbooks are minuscule compared to an NFL playbook. And what you have to know and to know that there's an Andy Reed or there's a, uh, there's a, um, uh, a McFay or there's a guy like that. And he's watching you. Andy Reid used to stare at me on film and find every one of my weaknesses. And you can't, you can't figure it out for a guy. And that we used to call it the bitch. You find out that the team has, has... They have put a target on your back. Either you can't cover or you can't tackle or something, but you're the target. They would say the sombrero's on you. I, I won't cuss too much. They say the sombrero's on you, where it sounds like it's prestigious. Oh, you have the sombrero's on you. Yay! Yeah. Hey. No, that means you're the weakest link and they're coming after you because they've assessed you as the weakest link. And so I think guys, you can't know how a guy's going to respond when he becomes the weakest link, when he is that guy that they're attacking. It might not, bro, it might not be every play. They wouldn't run at me. But when it was in the pass cover, they go to empty. They would look at me. And like I said, in, in the Saints game, when they had, um, who was it? Uh, the big white tight end. What was his name? He was hell. Out
0: of Miami. Um, oh, Jeremy Shockey.
1: Shockey. They had Shockey, and they put him at tight end, and they would have Reggie Bush and put him at number two week. So the corners on one, corners on one, niggas on two. Me and Jeremiah Bell had to decide: am I gonna cover Reggie or Shockey? <laughs> and they would sit and they set. It was I want to say, am I was? I think it was a Monday night game down in Miami, mm. and they would sit and wait for us to decide if I'm covering Shockey or if I'm covering Reggie. And whoever I covered, they would throw the ball this guy's the safety. He's a better coverage guy than you. So if you go on Shock, we're going to throw Shock the ball. If you go on Reggie, we're going to throw Reggie the ball. And they would decide that. So it wasn't like they were picking on me. It was that that was the most intelligent approach to the game when they got it empty. And that's what you know how a guy's going to respond in that situation. I would say I was the guy that wanted to step up. I would cheat like hell. I'd grab him. i go choke him. Mm-hmm. I would try to hit him, in, hit him in the private parts and all the little tricks you can you play in the game. But you don't know if a guy, how a guy's going to respond with a 15-minute meeting at the combine. Now, can you can you progress? Can you learn? Can you get better at that? It's all grinding, film study, and implementing it on the field at practice. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole practice makes perfect thing, it's an old cliche. and People say it all the time, and coaches say it all the time. They pound it in your head. If you can't do it at practice, you're not going to wake up Sunday and be an amazing coverage guy. If you're out there, like, if I'm out there getting beat by Anthony Fasano... And, and Randy McMichael and the Titans I play with, there's no way I'm going to cover Shock. I'm going to cover Tony Gonzalez, who killed me in Atlanta one time. He really <laughs> made me the bitch. <laughs> he destroyed me in Atlanta on the backside of slot one time. But if you can't, if you can't do it... If I couldn't do it against Anthony Pisano, there's no chance I'm going to do it against Gonzalez or Antonio Gates, who ate me up in San Diego. Like, those, it stays in my mind when I prepared for a guy well enough in my mind, but then I walked out in that second play... I would say to myself, yeah, bro, this, this is genetics. This is DNA. <laughs> God God did not make me to cover Tony Gonzalez. About to be a long day. God made day. other people to cover Tony Gonzalez. <laughs> and and like that's the part that you just have to grind and work and work and work, and you're going to get beat. That's short. You have to have a short memory. That's big time, too. And Sam Madison had the best. Sam Madison could get destroyed on the play. he still come back talking trash because he's the best in the world. Short memory. Let it go. Let it go. Short memory. Let it go. Let everything go. But get to, to progress and get better, it's just overall working and working, watching film, grinding. And the last thing about, you know, making those plays and, and psychologically or mentally getting to another level, you can't prepare for every play a team has. Mm-hmm. You can't prepare. In high school, I, I coach high school, bro. They have six runs. Every team has six runs. Mm-hmm. So all I do is just run six runs at my team the whole time, and then my kids will be like, hey, coach, it's the same run. Bro, yeah, that's what they do. They have six runs. In the NFL, they do so much window dressing, moving, slot turning, swipping, tight ends going, tight ends being fullbacks. Receivers now go to running back, and they put the tight... You, you can't really just lock in in the NFL on what to do, but you can get between five and ten plays of runs and passes that you know they're going to do. It's their bread and butter, and whoop their ass on those plays. Like Andy... Um, Andy Reid did it. Bill Belichick does it. There's a number of coaches that i played throughout my career where... When they come out in the third or fourth series of offense, they would throw a formation at you, and I would, like, Zach would sometimes look at me and smile. He's like, I, this is going to happen when you play the good coaches. Just understand, it's going to be something they throw out here that you have not seen. I don't care if you watch film. For 16 years of him coaching, he's always going to have something new. They call Everybody calls it a wrinkle, a new wrinkle. They'll always have that new wrinkle. You're not going to make a big play on the new wrinkle. But if a team gets in near eye and runs the power... And you know they run the power. Um, Ladainian Tomlinson, when he had their what was it, 26 touchdowns 6 yeah. 0607, they ran power 15 times a game. They had Nick Hart- Hartwick. Yeah, Hartwick. Hartwick yep. was the center. He could get up to the backside wheel. They had guards that can move. They had a uh, they had a hell of a tackle, and they would run the power to the defensive left side over and over and over again. And you had to stop that. And we went up there and beat them because we stopped the power. And I made a bunch of plays stopping the power at the Mike linebacker. But that was, I, I said, and myself and Zach and all, we locked it in. and we stop this power, let them run the lead. They get six on the lead, they get six on the lead. Let's choke them out running this power. Sam, they have to come down and just destroy everything. The mic has to roll over top. The wheel got to get across the center. And we just, we pound that in our, in our head. And that's how, we, that's how we beat them. But that's what you have to do. You have to get those five to ten run plays and those five to ten pass plays that you know they're going to do. They do every game. They might do it in the first series. They might wait to the second half to do it. But once you recognize it, that's when you make your big plays. And it's a lot easier said than done.
0: I can definitely understand that going against the best <laughs> in the world, the best in the profession. And you mentioned, you know, the, you talk about having those wrinkles that can get you. You guys got an entire team throughout the course of an entire game back in 2008. You mentioned the division championship. You're the Wildcat game. The first game, y'all broke it out and went rough shot. On the Patriots. Now, that was a successful season. And one of the reasons you guys went into 20, 2006 with high expectations was because of the close to that 2005 season. And one of those games was that Chargers game. I believe Chambers had a couple of big touchdowns. You guys played really good on defense. And so that six game winning streak at the end of 05 brought about really, really strong expectations. The Dolphins were Sports Illustrated's pick to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl that year. How much different is it in a locker room when there's expectations that are that high compared to maybe a more run-of-the-mill season where maybe you have playoff aspirations or division championship aspirations? Like, does having Super Bowl expectations like that really change the game for you guys?
1: It does, and especially what happened that year you are speaking of when we added Dante Culpepper, and you saw what he did with Chris, uh, Chris Carter and Randy Moss in Minnesota. You just knew he wasn't that, you know, he wasn't anybody player. He was one of the top guys. We know this history. Everybody knows he ended up, you know, his knee wasn't healthy, ended up retiring a couple years later, playing for the Raiders, I think, for a year or two. But when when we knew that we brought in Culpepper, we knew our defense could play. We knew we could play deep. I think, oh oh five, we were top, I say top five in a bunch of categories mm-hmm. and top ten in most categories. In we knew our defense was set. Let's get a quarterback to get his ball to Ronnie and Ricky and all these damn players we had. And let's just show out. Let's go out here. We knew West. West was still on the team, West Welker. We knew we had Randy Michael was a hell of a tight end. Like, we were like, hey, if we, if we lock in at quarterback, this is the run. And that's what Sports Illustrated saw. Mm-hmm. Hell, this defense is top 10. This, oh, we, we bring in Cole Pepper. If he plays like he did in Minnesota, this team can make a run. The approach to the, to the season, saving would let you really BS, but it was just something different when you really thought you had something. Guys would compete. Guys would go out there and talk about it, and 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 if you want to, you know, it's it's no secrets in the NFL. If you want to be great, talk great, work great, act great, you know, and just greatness should be all over you. And we really felt that way. I'm not gonna lie. After the first couple games with PEP, we were like, oh, <laughs> I don't see Minnesota PEP. I see a dude <laughs> with a bad knee PEP. Uh-huh. But the camp and leading up to it and all that stuff, it was a different feel. And it was only my second year, mm-hmm. so it was a different. A different field going in and that's one of the reasons i think nick saban left was he couldn't find that quarterback and in, in college you can get saban does it now he could get any quarterback and run this big these big-ass dudes on defense and get a good running game and go to national championship nfl i hate it going this way i love the uh, i'm a buccaneers fan the trent dilfer i mean the um brad johnson left buccaneers with Sapp and Lynch and Derrick Brooks and those guys, uh, uh, Barber on the outside. Like, I love defense. The Ravens, 2008, that's a trip deal Ravens with Brian Billick and them. I love, bro, you give me a 7 10 game, 30 to 30 to 30 to 30 to 30, to 30. I can't argue with that. That's football to me. Nowadays, football's changing. You gotta throw up at least 24, 28 points. You have to be able to get in the mid 20s to really make a run in this day and age in the NFL because you just can't choke people out anymore. It's tough to choke people out if you look at those top defense. 49ers. 49ers broke every level. Four first-rounders up front this year. Great linebackers. Good, Pretty good secondary. Kansas City, it was a matter of time until Kansas City figured Man. out how to get them. That's all it is. It's a matter of time. Give me 10 plays. Oh, we didn't do it? 30 plays. Okay. They got you about 40 plays. Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid said, we got you. They started running Travis Kelsey on the deep overs. They just they figured out what they were doing. So that that this day and age in the NFL, you have to score, and that's where the game's going. And like I said, I'm not a huge fan of, but I'm adjusting to it. I'm getting used to it. But the team that we went into the 06 year with, we thought we were going to do something until we saw that Pep wasn't that guy. And that's what that's what and that's what it became. I think that's why Saban left because he couldn't find a quarterback. But Dante Culpepper was the epicenter. Of that, of the excitement, and once we saw that wasn't there, I don't give a damn how many points we had on the other team too. They were going to score enough to beat us, and it, it was what it was.
0: As a fan, I was so excited for that season. The season opening game on Thursday night against Pittsburgh, you know that was that was new to the Dolphins at the time, so. There was a lot of expectations, like you mentioned, so we it, it, it happened pretty quickly because I think he got injured after three or four games and didn't play the rest of the year. You mentioned the high flying offenses like Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes It's like a shooter in basketball. It takes one quarter to wipe you out like a thirty five point quarter for in basketball or maybe like a four touchdown quarter like Mahomes has had so many times it's It's crazy, and you talked about your era with the dolphins and and I grew up in that era as a, as a fan, my childhood was the 13 to 10 win, you know, and you guys had so many of those 13 to 10 games or 16 to 13, just tight affairs that were back and forth, maybe a couple field goals here and there. And one of those games, I think it was more in the twenties, but it was a 2009 game against the Patriots. And I played the sound at the top of the show of your interception. When Cam Wake got in there, blasted Brady, you pick it off game over. That was the clip to open the show. Is that your favorite moment as a Miami Dolphin?
1: Yes, it was. It's the moment everybody talks about. It's the I'm sitting at the bar drinking beer with the buddies and uh, the 70 year old guy walks in with his wife and he walks up and bumps my back and he Brady interception and gives me the thumbs up. <laughs> that That's that's what people still talk about football wise. Now the media stuff, I do Dolphin Post game, you know, on, on uh, the fifth quarter CBS. So, you know, people see me more now. But when it's football and bro, I'm my last year was 11. 10 I retired, they cut me at 11. I ended up retiring, so I've been out for you know going on, going on 10 years and they still come up out the Brady. Even that, talking about this like the mental side of football, and this is this is a Tom Brady type. This is where the this is <laughs> next level of football where there's a guy called a rat. People that don't know what a rat is, he's a free player, he just reads the quarterback's eyes. So everybody's covering somebody. You can run a it's called people call it lurking if a safety is the rat and he's just a free player. He lurks. If a linebacker is a free player, he's a rat. So we end up ratting. And we had we had a beat on their plays. Wes Welker was there. And they would always run him on these crossers. Brady could read the rat. He could he would he would identify who the rat was by where if the linebacker to the right, if the running back's to the, his right, the linebacker that way is covering him, so the other linebacker is a rat. It was simple. If the other linebacker was removed, the safety's coming to rat. He could read all that. So to trick him wherever you wanted to rat to. You would have to turn your back that way for a second to let him to show him your eyes aimed left to come back to rat where you wanted to rat. So we had the game plan. If it was between me and Zach, you know wherever the wherever the or me was Zach still there, me and the other back. I think Zach might have been gone. Whoever the rat was, if Wes Welker's on that side when the ball snapped, mm-hmm. look away from Wes Welker and you're still peeking at Brady when Brady looks at you, and then he looks away, now you can turn back and rap. If you go back and watch that game, I missed an interception on the same exact play in, like, the second quarter, almost at the same point of the field. He was... West was to the boundary, and they were running across it to the field, and I turned, I turned back. When I turned back, I didn't get that back far enough, and it just hit my finger... Fingertips hitting the ground, because he threw it to West, and West was... Yeah, West was four foot two. So he was a <laughs> tiny little bastard. So... Earlier in the game, the same exact play—you had to trick Brady to rat away and then come back. And in that play, I tricked, i looked away to cut When I came back, I saw Cam beat the tackle and then he affected the ball. And I looked right back and turning my back. Now he was throwing it to the crosser, and it literally—it came right to me. I was standing there. I was about to go down. And actually, I was—I I was a banger. I was gonna try to knock West West to sleep. And the ball came right at me because um, Cam affected the throw. But that's just the, the the mental side of football I'm talking about, even in that play, and it was my biggest play as a Dolphin, was the psychological part, the mental part of even in the fourth quarter, we were up by four. There was a minute 24 left. Brady's known for doing that. Sure. You're up by four, a minute 20 left. Brady's going to go get the 80 yards mm-hmm. for a touchdown. Like, everybody knew that. The whole, you could feel it in the crowd. Everybody's like, oh, hey, this is Brady. We gave him too much time. And to seal that win... With film study, with a great game plan, we planned to do that. We had the rat there for the crossers. I end up being the rat. I end up doing it, per, you know, doing it correctly. Cam got his pressure, and Cam Wake's a free agent now. I don't know if we want, I wouldn't mind bringing him back, but it is what it is. He's a little older. But uh, Cam got his pressure, and me being in the right position to make that play. That was kind of. It was a big play. It won the game. People know me for it. But the bigger part of football we were talking about earlier, the psychological, the adjustments. Working through that on Monday, talking about that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then seeing it work game day, like that's the part of football that I love is the X and O of it, the the, the lining up 11 against 11, and we're, everybody has somebody to, to cover. Everybody has something to do. Who's going to win? Who's going to be better on that play, that snap? And I'd have to say, can't wait helped a little bit. He helped me a little yeah. bit, but I would have to say, I made that play. I was the be- I was the better guy on that snap to win the game against the
0: wing. Well the way you break it down it's hard to argue with you. So and, and like you mentioned, you you put whatever a player puts in through a week, sixty hours of getting your body right, getting the mind right, getting the practice reps in, to have it all kind of come to a to its conclusion on a three hour clip on Sunday, I can understand how that jubilation kind of comes out the entire week of work. I can't even imagine what that feels like as an athlete. Now Everybody knows you for that pick, like you mentioned, against the Patriots. And I want to ask you, Chang, this is entirely for me only. I was at a game back in 2008. It was the Matt Light game. I won't ask you to go into that that part yeah. of the detail. I won't ask you, you that. You
1: know the story, man. You know the story. I know the story, I mean, we'll but leave we won't it, put it. We'll yeah, we, we,
0: we don't got to put that on air. The part <laughs> we can put on air that I want to ask you about. So, in I, 2008, I must have been 21 years old. I was very, very young. Still am young, obviously. But. I went to the players' parking lot after the game because I wanted to get some autographs or some photos, and I was told that was the best place to go. And you you exited the game early, <laughs> but you left in your car with, at the same time as the other players, and you rolled out in this particular car that I'll never forget. I have a picture on my Facebook still. I snapped it because I was like, why is this dude driving that car? He's a professional football player. And for those that don't know, forgive my ignorance, I don't know what it was because I don't, I don't know the automotive industry whatsoever. I don't know the maker model of the car, but I know it looked old, and I know it was distinctly very brown. What was going on with that, man? Like, what was that car, and why were you the one driving it?
1: Um, I, 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 hang, I, I used to hang out in sketchy neighborhoods. I used to hang out in sketchy neighborhoods. I'm not a flashy dude. I have no jewelry. I wear G-Shock still. People make fun of me. i have like... 20 g shocks they cost 40 bucks i change the little faces every now and again I, I don't spend money save all my money i'm yeah i i'm not gonna be on broke if billy corbin does another another one i'm not i'm, I'm not gonna be that guy but i was in a i was in a, i was in the hood and there was a dude and he said he's selling a car for four hundred dollars and it was an old Oldsmobile like a 1977 Oldsmobile some big boxy car everything torn up in it i said four hundred dollars i had that car he was like, i'm messing with it he was a crackhead, let's be honest, he was a crackhead. So I'm like 400 bucks. He said 400 bucks. I said, "Where's the title?" I will get it. I said, "Okay." I, was th- I thought I was in the conversation. I was just messing around. I think I was waiting for my buddy and he was at some girl's house, and I'm just sitting there. And I was like, "Give me the title." He said, "Uh, okay." He comes back with the title, with the sign, with the title signed. I kind of look at it. I'm like, "So I give you $400, you give me this title, and this is my car." He said, "Yeah, man." I said, okay, for 400 bucks, out, gave him 400, he gave me the keys. I went in and cranked it up. I drove it around the block, came back, he was still there. I thought he was going to run. He was still standing there. I said, cool. I left. I went and got it registered. I went and got it insured. It was like $16 a year to insure that car. <laughs> it was a, It was nothing. And I was like, okay, I'll drive it to the game. So, yeah, I drove it to the game. I think that I only got to drive the four games because it broke down on the side of the turnpike. But uh, even when it broke down, it broke down the side of the turnpike. My family was driving my, um, my uh, what happened, I think I had Affinity then. They were behind me. I pulled to the side of the turnpike. <laughs> I took the license plate off. I took my stuff out, and I left it there. And they, I don't know what happened to it. They took it <laughs> somewhere and got rid of it. But, yeah, I paid $400 for a car. I drove it for about, about a month, month and a half. It broke down, and I let them have it.
0: Hey, it's just a sound investment. You got to take advantage of your opportunities when you get them. That's what it's all about. <laughs>
1: Think about that. Six weeks, four hundred dollars. That's you can't
0: run a car for that. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Not rent a car for a
1: month and a half for four hundred dollars. You're an That's opportunistic a dude.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it, man. That's what makes you the best, Channing. And I, I want to get to this before we get out of here. We're, we've run four times as long as my normal shows, but people are going to love it, so I'm more than happy to do it. But you've transitioned so well, and this podcast is proof of it. From a player into the radio personality role, like, how are you enjoying this second career, and and how did you? Like how did you get to the point to where you're so comfortable and just so like admirable to listen to on, on the airwaves?
1: Um, it was I was always a talker. I was always in a like more of an entertainer, but I was from like the country. I like I didn't I wasn't in no big city. I was out in the outskirts of Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? My mom got a she got a better job and then I went to Gainesville in the middle of the country. So I grew up kinda of in the outskirts and I went to Gainesville, and that's the damn, that's cornfields out there. So like I was just I always enjoyed country. And back then, bro, I, I didn't have Twitter and Facebook and MySpace and the guy got guy, blah, 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 all this crap. You had to talk to humans. You had to talk, and when you're sitting around drinking beer or you're sitting on the porch, like you just sit and make fun of people. You sit in your dorm room and, and tease guys and just joke and tell stories and tell a story about the girl back in high school and had my uncle, this and that. And you had to do it. And then as I got in the in the league, my opportunity actually was with one of the news stations. And during the, during the media sessions of the, when the Dolphins locker room, and they put me way in a corner, and they put me next to these damn Polynesians because they didn't speak good English. They put me next to, like, Paul Soliai and uh, Reagan Mawai and Samson Satelli. The juggernaut. They put me next to all these guys because they didn't speak good English, so they didn't think I could influence them badly. So they put me over in this corner and just leave me there to my own devices, and this crazy little ADD mind would be going... So in the media session, I would just start making fun of everybody, teammates, media members. Um, David J. Neal, he's a, he comes to the office. He wears the Sheikis. I used to kill him with um, Coming to America jokes. <laughs> all the Barry Jacksons and all the Hal Habibs and Omar Kellys. I used to just kill these guys, just joking around. <laughs> they knew I was joking. So a TV station came up to me, and they were like, hey, do you mind if a cameraman just puts a camera on you and records you? He's like, we'll edit it. You know, Take the cuss words out. we will make you look bad. But there's like 15 seconds when the credit runs after the news. They were like, and we'd rather instead of playing some doom, 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 some song, we'll just play 15 seconds of you messing around and call it Crowder's Corner. It was like on Friday nights. I was like, cool, and the Dolphins approved it. And that was my end to 560 at the time, and it was at was Beasley at the time. So when I in 2011, the Dolphins released me, and I was still getting some, I was still getting, you know, a percentage of my, uh, my uh, salary because that was after the lockout. So I was going to take the year off. And they came up to me, and Steve Goldstein ended up choosing TV over radio, and it was a big ordeal. They had a slot open. And they were like, hey, you know, you like to talk, you're funny, you like to mess around, would you want to fill in on radio? So I filled in on that show midday. I went on Joe Rose and Sid Rosenberg's show, and just messed around. Just wanted for an hour here, hour there. Just 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 messed around, and kind of saw like, you get paid, and I was watching them, and I'm like, you, have pay- you get paid to have an opinion? It's the easiest thing in the world to get is an opinion. You have to work for, like, Think about what you have to work for to get. You have to work for an opinion. It's yours. Like, it, it's easy to have. I have no, to have an opinion, you need to do no research. You need to look into nothing. You just have to say, just talk when they stop. And I saw it, and I'm like, bro, I don't need to go to communications class to give an opinion. And I worked on it. I did do some work. I went to some um, seminars and things. I went to the NFL combine, some of those little combines that do the weekend thing. just kind of understand the business. And now, like I say, I'm on. On ten years of doing it, but I I always knew there was more to football. I always knew, like I was I wasn't the you know the caveman, the Neanderthal. People want to think football players are the sea ball, hit ball, I'd run <laughs> this way. This is my gap. All that. I was never that guy. Like I could really think about stuff, and I would joke around a lot. I'd mess around a lot. So it was a natural transition to be able to talk, give an opinion that people have trouble coming up with their sales, which is still amazing to me. But have an opinion and to be able to articulate it correctly. You know, I could al- I could always I could always articulate myself. I could always talk and like it's it's funny that when people tell me like when I'm sitting around my boys they're like you can talk and then you can entertain and like there's a there's a there's a level where you can you can tell a story and then you can really tell a story and make it good line it up and give people the visual of what's going on and ex- you know explain the small details so that people really feel what you're talking about. And once I figured out that was a God-given gift, I just kept doing it, kept grinding at it, you know, worked my way up. Wasn't making when I started, I wasn't making I was making peanuts. I wasn't getting paid for like a couple years, but just to, to learn it and get used to it. And a lot of guys aren't, they're not ready for that. To coming come to the, the league minimum is now, what five hundred thousand, something like that. So the guy going to go a half a million and plus every single year of his life to hey, you're going to come in every day and make thousand dollars a month,
0: sure. <laughs>
1: huh? Twelve grand, like so. A lot of guys aren't used to that and trying to get sponsors and going to meetings and all. So once I figured out how it's how it's done and really media's money, if you can sell, if you can get sponsorships and all, I figured out the process and I was just, I stayed with it long. I didn't do diligence enough to really make a career out of it. So like I said, I'm 10 years in, 36 years old. I do it for another 10, 15 years and then, I don't know. I'll try to coach or something. Go to college, go to the NFL, go coach after my kids grow up. But it's a, it's a fun job now and it's um, It I, I'm noticing now guys have trouble transitioning and I didn't so I didn't realize it until a lot of my other friends started retiring and guys started retiring and guys that made way more money than me that I respect that were better than me and then I see that a lot of people do have trouble with that
0: second career. I, I do hope we get 10, 15 more years of you because, like, like I said, you're just fantastic on the radio. Love having you on these podcasts. And speaking of kind of paying your dues in the media aspects, I'm going to be moving down your way sometime this summer. We're not quite sure yet. The wife is pregnant. She's due in May. So when she has our, our firstborn, our daughter, we're going to be moving down there sometime shortly thereafter. So we'll have to catch up at Twin Peaks or somewhere and get a beer together, man. Sound good?
1: Yes, sir. I got one due June 10th. June tenth, hey,
0: yeah. Boy, girl? I got a baby
1: coming June tenth. I got a little boy coming. He's my third. You said it's your first, so yeah, they'll be they'll be in school together coming up and all. Yeah. Hopefully, they can, yeah, they can be friends coming up. But yeah, man, you come down, I can show you all the South Florida.
0: Channing, thanks a bunch for doing this, man. We'll do it again real soon here. Okay.
1: No problem, man. I really respect what you do. I'm glad you're coming down to the market because uh, I I follow everybody that loves the Dolphins and follow Dolphins, and you you do the film breakdown. You do the Twitter like you really, you really do the X and O football side stuff. So we've talked in the past. I don't know if people know we've talked at games and things. I I really enjoy following you, and man, I'm glad that you're coming down to really be a big part of Dolphins because you're going to add so much to this organization, to be honest.
0: That means that means everything, Channing. I can't wait for it personally. It's it's only a couple months away, and I'm already counting the days down. So there he is, ladies and gentlemen, your Dolphins linebacker number 52, Channing Crowder. Again, man, fantastic stuff.
1: Have a good one, Big Dog.
0: Man, how good is he? Off he goes. And we'll just go ahead and cut the podcast off right there because we're not going to improve upon that. So all you, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Drive Time podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast from. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter at NFL. Follow Channing at Official Crowder. And of course, the Dolphins at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast. Channing did two episodes of that, I think, about a year ago. Check those out. Check out the Audible podcast, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.